Welcome to When Everything is Missions. When Everything is Missions is hosted by Matthew Ellison, President of 1615, and Danny Spitters, Vice President of Church Partnerships with Pioneers USA. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Here are your hosts, Matthew Ellison and Denny Spitters. Welcome once again to the When Everything is Missions podcast. I am Matthew Ellison, and I am joined by my co-host, Denny Spitters, who happens to also be a co-author with me in a book we wrote called When Everything is Missions. Of course, the podcast is named after the book. And we have a brand new book. Uh, It should be out by the time you're listening to this podcast called Conversations on When Everything is Missions rediscovering the mission of the church. We've been interviewing guest authors, so why don't you let us know about our guest today? Yeah, we're going to enter into part two with Ted Essler here. Uh, His uh, chapter uh, is one of the very early chapters in the book surrounding the idea of how did we get to the place we are today in missions, and the title of his chapter is Deconstruction of the Great Commission. So, Ted, good to have you back for part two and good to have your insight uh, in the role that you play as president of Missio Nexus. Give a brief kind of, what is Missio Nexus? Missio Nexus is an association of mission agencies and churches that are focused on the Global Great Commission. And we provide a number of services and various uh, opportunities for collaboration. Our mission is to catalyze relationships, collaboration and ideas within the Great Commission community. And so everything we do is kind of focused on those three things. Well, we we so appreciate your role in that and your vision and your leadership. And uh, we're glad to be able to interact with you. And in the first part, we had a chance to talk about missiology being a dark science, uh, what deconstructionism is in missions, what it looks like, what it's looked like theologically and historically. And um, we dealt with a variety of issues like that. Um, Let's talk about something you bring up that seems to be a very great irony. And that's this quote, quote, the church outside the West has multiplied many times over while the Western church the source of most of the critique and deconstructionism, I might add, fights for relevance in its own culture. Please elaborate on uh, on this idea, since the belief that missionaries destroy culture and are relatively ineffective, uh, since all missionaries are colonials, is what many, even Christians in the West, believe. You know, there there is a spirit in the air. Um, you know, we're not going to get political here, but we know about the 1619 project, which is a is a redefinition of at least the American story around slavery. And, and listen, I don't want to discount slavery or its horrors, but I do think that it highlights the importance of kind of the the bigger narratives. In, in how we interpret and how we understand reality. Mm. And when it comes to missions, uh, there's been plenty of popular false narratives. The, the one that comes to my mind is James Michener's book, Hawaii. Sure. Which, you know, we, we actually have the written sermons of the Hawaiian missionaries. And if 
many of those were read today, they would feel like very um, almost leftist um, native rights documents. They were nothing like the missionaries portrayed in Missionaries Hawaii. Um, and, and you could, I mean, you could even look at American Indian ministry in North America. I mean, a famous theologian, I don't call him a famous theologian. I call him a famous missionary is Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. And a lot of people forget that he was a missionary uh, to Indians. Now, the, the formats that they use, this concept of standing up in front of a group of people and preaching without learning their language, without learning their culture, those types of things I understand are up for critique. And, and those, those are anachronistic uh, critiques because missionaries are not like that today. They haven't been for a long time. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find contemporary examples of missionaries who were, who were you know, trying to communicate to people in a language they didn't understand or forcing them to wear westernized clothing or any of those tropes. Um, n none of that is, is true today. And, and as we have gained in our understanding of how best to communicate the gospel, missionaries have changed. Yet this narrative of the missionary as, you know, I, a lot of people don't realize that somebody like William Carey, he was there in spite of the British government. The, yeah. British, the East India Company did not want William Carey there as a missionary. And the wow. reason why they didn't like him is because he was teaching indigenous empowerment to people. You know, William Carey, had he translated Sanskrit. He went back into the ancient Sanskrit texts and he contemporized them so that modern Indians could, for the first time in hundreds of years, read their own writings from their ancient history. The other thing he did that really ticked off the colonial rulers of the time was he opposed what's called sati or sati. I'm not sure the right way to say it yeah. in the indigenous language, but that's the burning of widows. Yeah. And um, that practice is based on the fact that Shiva's wife was so dedicated to him that when he died, she burned herself. And it's, it's lasted. In fact, the law on ending SETI in India was not passed, believe it or not, until the 1980s. But William Carey, way back when, was the one, was one of, not the only one, but one of the voices strongly opposing it and that put him at odds with the colonial rulers of the day. And there's many more examples of that that, happen, that have happened throughout history. So the narrative is much stronger than the reality when it comes to how missionaries were colonialistic through history. Yeah, even almost a false narrative, if you will. I mean, William Carey is known in some um, writings as being almost the father of modern India. Yes. In fact, I have sitting on my shelf here, just to my right, um, a William Carey stamp. They commemorated William Carey in India with his own postage stamp mm -hmm. because he had, he, had, he had created so much uh, cultural treasure by going back in history and finding the, the wisdom of ancient Indians and bringing them back to life. And he's revered in India. Uh, which is not what you'd think about a British colonial missionary. One last thing I would just say is 
but probably the, the greatest number of missionaries have been out since World War II, which we call the post-colonial age. And most of them have been working in countries freed from colonialism and um, not tainted by that political system. I shouldn't mm. say not tainted because they were all tainted by it, but they were not laboring under that system. You know, one of the things that I know is a concern for Denny, and I'm sure you too, Ted, myself, is that so many Christians are buying the narrative. Yep. Uh, when we were at Missio um, a year or two ago, I can't remember, it all starts to run together because of COVID, but but Ed Stetzer did an you know, incredible talk, and he talked about our John Allen Chow moment, and he reflected back on the Palm Beach murders, Nate Saint, Raji Darian, et cetera, and how you know those men were celebrated largely and, um, you know, of course, by the church, but even by, you know, Life magazine, et cetera. He said what made the John Allen Chow martyrdom so different was, was not the opposition that came from the world, but that came from the church, where, where Christians were saying, why are we still sending missionaries to these unreached people groups? Yep. Maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit, Ted. I, you know, that's it, it's very frightening when Christians are saying we don't need to take the gospel to the nations. Right, right. You know, there, there is a definite generational shift related to this. There's also a um, ignorance in the church. Um, I'm reminded here of the study that Barna did, I think last year, was it last year? And in that study, what they found out is that only 17% of church-going Christians could identify the Great Commission among a set of options of different verses. 25%, okay, let me rephrase that. 17% said, yes, I know what it is, and this is what it means, and they gave an answer. 25% said they cannot recall the exact meaning. It's, I kind of know it. And then 51% said no. So that's a, that's a full 76% of churchgoers who could not explicitly identify the Great Commission. And, you know, I, I would just say that um, we are we are faced today with a church in the U.S. and Canada which does not know its own theology and does not know its own Bible and does not know that uh, there is a overwhelmingly important command given yeah. to us. Now, when something like John Chow happens and it reverberates across the world, the initial news reports that went out, which were factually incorrect about his preparation, about his working with indigenous nationals to do this ministry, um, a, a whole range of things. Mm -hmm. They were almost immediately picked up by the Christian press and reported as truthful. And that's what set the narrative. Yeah. And um, it, very, very sad that that happened. And I would hope that in the future, Christians don't allow, uh, you know, these secular news organizations to be their sources of information when something like this happens, because it, it, it wasn't even close to the reality of what's on the ground. And even in the last few weeks, I've had conversations with mission leaders who are still critical of what John Chow did, and I believe ignorant of what he really did in terms of preparation. And these leaders were actually from organizations that themselves had had martyrs in generations past. Wow. So, uh, you know, if now is the time for us, if you're in church leadership, 
you should be studying martyrdom and understanding what it means and making sure that people in your congregations are aware that 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 is also a part of the Great Commission. Well, you bring up this whole idea that in North America, we don't really, we're unaware of what the Bible says, uh, showing the Barna study, et cetera. And the other thing that is really big in North America is this whole pitching of the Great Commission against the Great Commandment. And you talk about this in this chapter, define and describe the tension between the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Well, to, the, when I talk about the Great Commission, it's really all the things that we do as believers to be obedient disciples. And a very plain verse uh, in James, you know, the, the feeding and taking care of widows and orphans is an example. That's pure religion. That is, that is just what we do because we're believers. That is what we do because, you know, we're, we're so grateful and thankful for our salvation and we're motivated by love. And we're being obedient uh, to, to, to our identity in Christ. Now, inside that big basket, there's a smaller basket, a more focused basket. That is the Great Commission. Um, you know, and I talked before about the big three evangelism, discipleship, or church and church planting. And, and that smaller basket is a um, is is also part of the obe of obedience. If you took that basket out then you would not truly be, um, to be tongue-in-cheek here, you would have a hole in your great uh, great commandment discipleship. Um, it, it has to go along with the whole package. Now, we could even talk about smaller divisions of the Great Commission. For example, people that, have, that are completely unreached for the gospel. That's even a more specific focus within that great commission circle. But here's the beauty of the Great Commission is that there is another circle. Let's say it's taking care of widows and orphans. Those circles, like in a Venn diagram, they overlap. They, they don't displace one another. Right. And so you can love and care for widows while you also do the communication necessary to fulfill the Great Commission. And they're not to be interposed against each other or seen as displacing one another but they should be seen as augmenting one another and going hand in hand. And unfortunately, and I would trace this all the way back into the 1920s and 1930s with the fundamentalist uh, split in the church. Um, we have decided for whatever reason that if you talk about social work, you're not talking about gospel work. And if you're talking about gospel work, you're not talking about social work, even though these things are, able to be seamlessly integrated with each other. So that, that's kind of how I see those things fitting together. So Ted, you quote Steve Addison in the Rise and Fall of Movements. This is right from your chapter. A shift has taken place over the last century in the Western understanding of God's mission and the part we play in it. That shift has resulted in what Addison calls a missional fog surrounding Western churches. Increasingly, missions is framed in political and social terms fighting for economic justice, world peace, saving the planet, so forth, so on. All of these activities and causes have been classified as mission, but these are not the core of the missionary task. So, Ted, that statement would be considered an affront, I know, to many Western um, leaders, Christian leaders. 
give me your thoughts on that statement. What have you observed in your global travels among many missions groups? Well, the first thing I would just say, when I travel among um, especially non-Western missionaries that don't have our kind of uh, historical baggage and are thinking about these topics, I never see those things juxtaposed against each other. Um, if, if somebody is, for example, um, fighting for economic justice, here's a better example. I was with a gentleman who was in his context fighting against female uh, circumcision, mm. which is a heinous practice tied to some forms of Islam, particularly in East Africa. And he was fighting that cause, but he was fighting that cause not as a side gig to his gospel work, but he was fighting that cause in the name of Christ. You know, who represents justice of any sort better than Jesus? Yeah. And, and to think that we could somehow either extract Jesus from the justice or the justice from Jesus, to me, is it's rather asinine. Yet, we do see this push and pull all the time. And I think sometimes, this is a little harsh, and forgive me for being judgmental, but sometimes I think it's done for acceptance. You know, when I was, so I, I used to work in the tech industry and I owned my own computer consulting firm. And uh, then I became a missionary. And I can remember sitting on an airplane, getting to know somebody for the first time. And they said, well, what do you do for a living? And if I say to them, I'm a missionary, I get one reaction. If I say to them, well, I own my own computer consulting firm, I get a completely different reaction. And I was tempted to just give the easy answer, which is I own my own computer consulting company. That's something esteemed in our culture. And unfortunately, to be a missionary, to be engaged in mission, to be a proclaimer of the Great Commission and the gospel, it all sounds quite quaint and campy and old-fashioned in our culture. And so I think one reason why we have moved away from it, and I'm sad to say that I see this common in a lot of hip churches, a lot of churches that are trying to be relevant, is that they are trying to be able to give uh, impression to society that is an impression, I think, other than a gospel impression. And that's really something that we need to call out when we see it. Hmm. Boy, that's really helpful, Ted. Um, I've got one more here for you to kind of wrap this up. Um, you argue that Great Commission doesn't really need to be rethought, but rediscovered. What are your concluding thoughts on the state of missions in the North American church specifically? Um, is is missions even necessary for the North American church? Is it even possible anymore with all of the changes um, in the North American church? You know, Denny, I have great hope. You know, every generation has to relearn. And, and everybody wants to be engaged in self-discovery. You know, I, if, if I can learn something by doing, I enjoy that so much more than just sitting and listening to somebody tell me. Hmm. And um, I would hope that we as leaders, particularly, you know, I'm, I'm in my late 50s. When I look down at the generations coming after me, 
I hope that they have the same joy that I had. I mean, I went to a church service one Sunday morning, my wife and I, and for the first time in our lives, we saw and heard a missionary talk about working in an unreached remote tribe. It was all brand new to me because I didn't grow up in a highly churched environment. I didn't even know there were missionaries around anymore. Here I'm about 20, 21 years old, 22 years old. And for the first time, I'm hearing about mission from the pulpit of my local church. And man, I was just, I was shocked that that kind of thing could even be out there. So I went up to the speaker. I said, hey, can we take you out for lunch? I, I kind of have a hard time believing there's Stone Age people left in the world today. We had lunch together. That led to one thing, led to another. And it really opened up for me a whole part of the Christian life that I was not in on before. Hmm. And, I got, and I got to learn for myself these wonderful truths. So, you know, my hope is we may lament the statistic, for example, we gave earlier of how few people may know what the Great Commission is. Yep, but there's yep. also an awesome opportunity before us, and that is to let the next generation rediscover the Great Commission. And I think if we really teach from the scriptures what Jesus taught, um, it's pretty hard to miss. Yeah, It goes all the way back to Genesis and all the way through to Revelation. So let's make sure they get a chance to hear that, that full gospel story preached yeah. from beginning to end, hear the commands of Christ, and then meet some people that are actually out there on the front lines making it happen. And I think we will see them discover the simple truths of the gospel and that there's great hope. Well, Ted, that's a great point to close on. Thank you so much for being our guest today. I know it's been enriching for me. Every time I swing swords with you, brother, I feel like I learned something new. And uh, I'm sure our audience was blessed. So, brother, thank you. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, been fun talking to you. Before you go, visit our website to learn more about When Everything is Missions and order your copy today. It is www.whenEverythingIsMissions.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss one. The When Everything is Missions podcast is presented by 1615.